The whole time on the way over here in the car, I was just thinking of the scene from Dumb and Dumber where he just goes, no way, that's great. Oh my god! Then he runs out, we landed what? on the moon. What an absolute electric, electric scene. What a banger of a movie. Welcome back to a Gems of History podcast special, little little holiday edition. Oh baby, on the holiday it comes out. Can't even plan that any better if we tried, you because know, the 4th of July is just like the most, you're going to listen to a podcast if you're driving somewhere, either to or from, you know, a time up north, or literally just, I don't know, if you're going to a parade, why not throw on a history podcast? Yeah, right. Or if you're just hammered sitting in a lawn chair and you're not going to remember what the podcast is about, listen to it while you're doing that, and then you can go back and be like, oh, I didn't, I didn't actually listen to this because I was drunk. So then you can listen to it again and give us more listens. I'll give someone a free Gems of History t-shirt if they send us a video of them hijacking the Bluetooth speaker at their grill out, at their like time on the lake, on the boat ride, if you hijack the Bluetooth and play our intro and play like part of the podcast. That'd be awesome. If you send us video proof, I'll send you a free Gems of History t-shirt. But yes, it is uh, 4th of July when this comes out, so a very American holiday. So for those mm-hmm. of you outside the United States, sorry. But yeah, it's exciting for us, I guess. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's our Independence Day. But uh, yeah, it's super exciting to dive into the topic today. But before we do that, Jacob, what's just like, what do you think is just the most American thing to ever America? Like a moment. Um. I was going to say... Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot Have for you one. ever seen the meme of the dude where it's like me when I'm like four Apple teenies in at Applebee's and Freebird comes on and then it's just him taking off his pants and like stripping in an Applebee's? <laughs> I feel like that is probably a good, a good American moment. But I mean, also what we're going to talk about today is a pretty, pretty good moment because we landed on the moon. I definitely have to talk because we didn't know that this would come out on 4th of July and when we were talking about what to do, I googled cool moments in U.S. history. Oh yeah! And if for whatever reason someone works at Google, we have to adjust the list because the top three results were one, nine eleven, two, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and three, Hurricane Katrina. And I'm pretty sure the Battle of Gettysburg was in there. Yeah, so Battle of Gettysburg was in there. Lots of human death. Just insane results. And I typed in word for word, coolest moments of United States history. Yeah. And number one was 9-11. Yeah, because we we're kind of brainstorming. Never forget. Because we've done, I'm pretty sure we've done like four UK topics in the past five episodes. We really have. So we were like, well, this comes out on the 4th of July. So maybe we should come back to America for this one. And we were brainstorming. And Evan sent me that screenshot. And I was like, oh, Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and usually, whenever we do talk about America on the show, it's usually us very critical of our yeah. past leaders and or generals. It's hard. Fuck you, Andrew Jackson. There's, it's hard to find the bright spots sometimes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it, today we did. Yeah, I can get a little little doom and gloom when you look back at U.S. history sometimes. But uh, today, we're going to be talking about the moon landing. Yes. So we're going to 
go into the the space race, which it's I don't want to say it's as fun as it sounds because it really wasn't. There's a lot of bad things associated with it, like just in terms <laughs> of things not working correctly. Right. But it was a very monumental undertaking for the United States to try and beat the Soviets. And humankind in general, just the amount of advancements in technology that happened, both to get to space and both, you know, they were like, wait, if we can send men to the space, we can send rockets uh, with nukes. And dogs. <laughs> and dogs. Uh, very far across the world. But extremely excited. This is definitely one of the brighter spots of American history. And just, again, mankind is a huge accomplishment. Oh, yeah. Done by some of the smartest people in the world who were, on average, I saw a stat with NASA, at least on average, most of the people that worked there were only between 30 and 32. That's crazy. Like some, I'm sure like more like the gentleman that you'll get into a little bit yeah, older, but like the, uh, the underlings, if you will, were all like 30 to 32. Which, ooh, that's only uh, six years away for us. Hey, I don't. We we got some time. We could still make it. We still got time to send people to I don't know Uranus, but but yeah, this is a as I said a massive undertaking, and I saw somewhere that at its peak for the just the Apollo missions, the amount of staffing on hand was three hundred seventy five thousand people. Yeah. So yeah, there is a lot that went into this, and it is honestly mind blowing how much got done in the span of six years about a little over six years oh yeah the technological advancement absolutely insane so i'll start because we were jealous of the soviets that's yep tried and true that's great but i know that before we dive into the space race and the actual story of the moon landing jacob you have a gentleman that you want to highlight who was very instrumental in this whole ordeal yeah so pretty much the main reason that america beat the soviets in the space race is because of one man and his name is Werner von braun and you may have heard that name before you may not have but he was the key instrument in the american agenda to form nasa and actually get it up and running So without him, I don't think we would have made it to the moon. And if we would have, it would have been far after the Soviets did. So I I just wanted to highlight him beforehand because even though he did help us and was an American hero in his lifetime, we found out a lot of things after he died (laughs) that aren't very good. So The hindsight comes for everyone. No one (laughs) knows. Yeah, this man died, and then I think he may be the first person ever to get canceled. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. So if you couldn't tell by his name, Werner von Braun is very German, well, Prussian, but same difference. Mm. So von Braun was born in 1912 to a conservative nationalist aristocratic family, and he was technically a baron, so he was of high standing in his family and very... His family was very militaristic. He had a lot of people in the army. So he had a pretty much set route in his life. But in his teenage years, he became pretty obsessed with space travel and followed his dream, which was to one day lead a mission to the moon. And he started that by pursuing an engineering career. So starting off okay. Not a bad goal to have as a kid while everyone else is picking their nose or pooping themselves. He's yeah. like, I'm going to go to the moon yeah, or just, send people to the moon. He saw the science fiction coming out at the time about space travel and all that stuff. And right. it honestly, 
I saw one thing that just said the science fiction around this time was so influential in how we viewed the American exploration because we're like, oh, this sounds cr- like making a giant gun to shoot us into space is crazy, but the the idea of going to space isn't crazy. The new frontier, yeah. So it's it's pretty interesting how much something like a entertainment media like that influenced policy. Do you think that the book, The Journey to the Center of the World, uh, influenced people trying to discover the hollow earth a little bit? I mean, <laughs> Russia did dig a hole like 14 miles into the ground, so can't say it didn't do nothing. Wow, shout out Russia. They went 0 for 2. They yep. didn't get to the hollow earth or the moon. But they do have the deepest hole, so I guess they technically won the battle. <laughs> but... <laughs> they won the battle for deepest hole. Yeah. Snaps for Russia. Good job. <laughs> so by the time he was 20, Werner von Braun had an offer from the German army to finance his studies if he worked secretly on liquid propellant for rocketry. And it was around this time that Hitler officially became chancellor of Germany. So if you can't tell where this is going, yep. the, just hold on to your hats. So it was said that von Braun didn't really take interest in the Nazi party despite having a nationalist upbringing, but he did see it as an opportunity to further his studies. Eventually, the Nazi organizations were pushing for these non-member students to join them in paramilitary activities. And by the age of 25, Werner von Braun was the technical director for the German Army Division at... uh, I looked up how to pronounce this word. Yes, yes. Penemunde, I think is how you say it or something like that. Oh, bonjour. Very German, but I don't know how to say it correctly. So that's what you're getting. So while working there, he was accepted to join the Nazi party, and seeing the possibility to hurt his career, if he refused, he accepted. And by the spring of 1940, an SS officer approached von Braun with an invitation from Heinrich Hemmler, who was one of the most powerful men in the Nazi party, pretty much second in command to Hitler, to rejoin the SS, but this time as an officer instead of a non-member student. Big ol' oof. (laughs) Yeah, that escalated very quickly. Wow. From the numero dos himself. And Himmler was the man, just a flashback, who kept a vial of blood on him all the time. Yep. Yeah, a little Spear of Destiny throwback, episode six or something like that. Architect of the Holocaust, not a good guy. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Von Braun's military supervisor once again told him that it would be politically inconvenient for the missile program if he said no to this invitation. So Von Braun said yes once again. But this time, it was said that it was probably likely that he could have made excuses to get out of it. So not really forced in this situation, but also probably would have been more of a hassle if he didn't say yes. I'm just picturing him being like, oh, no, I just have to join the Nazi party. He is the definition of an opportunist. Oh, my gosh. He took advantage of everything that he could and then eventually just walked himself into a position where he's like, ah, I went a little too far here. Yep. And it's kind of crazy because Germany was just at the forefront of basically all scientific I guess upbringing, if you want to call it, like revolution. Oh, they, I don't even know what you want to, what the proper word for that is, but like they were the leaders in almost every single technological technological industry. Yeah. So I mean, at the time, him saying no to becoming SS officer, which you probably should say no if you have the option to do that. But if you're looking at for a career 
advantage with him being raised in Germany, he probably thought, it's like, oh, maybe I can get more funding for my stuff. Oh, yeah. They were just throwing money at him. So. Yeah. And, but still, not justifying being an SS officer. Right. I want that on record. Regardless, within three years, von Braun had risen to the rank of a major in the SS because of Himmler's appreciation of his work. So he's very quickly rising through the ranks. By October of 1942, the V-2 rocket program headed by Werner von Braun's team made its first successful flight, which was just a new missile application using that new uh, fluid propellant or whatever I said earlier, liquid propellant rocket fuel. So it was a very big step in propulsion for missiles. But it was also around this time that the war was getting worse for the Germans, so Hitler pushed the production of these missiles up in the schedule, despite the relative lack of testing that it had, which meant that the program needed workers to meet quota on missile production. Bad part here is that German manpower was already spread pretty thin on the war effort, and this gave the Nazi party a perfect excuse to do what they did best, exploit and Brutally enforce slave labor. Stop me. Yeah, stop us if you've heard this one. Nazis used uh, quite the workforce. Yeah. Shortly after, uh, an SS camp was founded at the place that uh, Werner von Braun was working at, and concentration camp inmates and foreign workers began to be shipped in. The other two V2 factories also had prisoners brought in, and eventually the missiles that they were making were used in an air raid on civilians in Britain, and this forced Hitler and Himmler to push their manufacturing underground to a new facility known as Mittelwerk, or Mittelwerk. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was just throwing me off. <laughs> but yeah, of course they did. They just tested on a couple of civilians. Was that did they test those like on London, like London civilians? I don't UK? remember in where specifically it was in in the UK, but I know it was sent to civilian locations mm. in their bombing raids. So, yeah, these things are being used for definite war crimes. Ooh, just like the US with the pyro bombing, we're seeing a theme yes. here. World <laughs> War II. So, before this Mittelwerk camp was established or a production facility was established, Von Braun could avoid direct interaction with these prison camp laborers because they weren't in his direct line of work. But now he was an overseer of operations and could deploy these people how he saw fit. So it was said that he probably interacted with these people in their underground barracks somewhere around 12 to 15 times. So he knew exactly what was going on and how things were going there. He knew, yeah, he definitely saw the probably the conditions that these people were being housed in. And also, yeah, he knew, he knew. Yeah. So by the summer of 1944, von Braun tried to help a French physicist prisoner named Charles Cedron, but he was simultaneously attempting to get prisoners transferred to the Mittelwerk's Mittelbau-Dora facility in hopes that this Frenchman that he would save would lead those prisoners for him. So a very much I help you, you help me situation. Cedron refused. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> However, the prisoners were apparently transferred, so Werner von Braun was definitely implicated here in crimes against humanity. 
He did admit to knowing how bad the conditions were underground, but he denied seeing any dead bodies or seeing reports that later led to prisoner hangings. But did he just see, oh, we're kind of short on people in the workforce today. I wonder if they're just sleeping in. Like, he all right, he guy. did like the, uh, the hands over his ears. La, 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 la. I can't see this. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's happening here. But at the same time that he was working at these camps, he was actually arrested by the Gestapo for claiming that Germany was fighting a losing battle in some careless and possibly drunk remarks. Ooh. The dangerous 10-day arrest was eventually ended when various military supervisors testified about how important von Braun was to the missile program, but it was said that this experience is what pushed Werner von Braun further away from the Nazi party and Hitler, but before this, he had actually met Hitler four or five times. So that shows you how high up he is in the hierarchy of everything going on. To put it in layman's terms, oh, he was a Nazi Nazi. He was a Nazi Nazi, yes. So he realized now that even though he wanted to leave, he was stuck. Yeah, there's no getting out. (laughs) But he continued to use that SS prestige that he had and loyalty to the army to carry himself to the end of the war. And in May of 1945, he surrendered to the U.S. Army. Does it say, do you find any info on how he surrendered? Like, did he just, like, try to run towards the U.S. Army camp, or did they eventually just, like, find Mittelwerk? No, I think he left Mittelwerk and, like, he traveled somewhere, and basically he had to find a good location where he could just be like, oh, I give up without them coming in and just guns blazing, you know? Mm -hmm. So he eventually found a location where it was safe enough for him to just be like, oh, no, come get me. And the U.S. was, yeah, the U.S. general was just like, jackpot. Yeah, literally. You're going to help us go to space. So since America was keenly aware and interested in the V2 technology that he was working on, Von Braun was brought over to Fort Bliss in Texas, where he awaited the arrival of his team of around 125 German scientists, engineers, and technicians. What a difference of, uh, or probably like a culture shock going from Germany and underground to Texas. Yeah. Yeehaw. Yeehaw, indeed. (laughs) And this is where we get into project or operation paperclip territory. And I've mentioned it on the show before, but for those of you that haven't heard those episodes and aren't aware of what Operation Paperclip is, it was a program that basically brought over a bunch of Nazi scientists, doctors, engineers, etc. to America, wiped away their past Nazi records, or at least swept them away for the time being, and employed them to help us in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. What a cover-up name as well. Operation Paperclip? Yep. Should have just done like Operation Clean Slate. Was that just taken? I No idea. They, Oper- did, they had a weird way of naming things at this yeah. point in time. So Operation. Uh, it was a long time ago. You should just forgive him. Operation Look at the Desk. What's on the desk? Paperclip. Yes. <laughs> in 1950, Werner and his new team was moved to Huntsville, Alabama. where he And then would, Alabama. Yeah, he's just getting the southern treatment. Wow. And there, he would serve to further his career in space exploration and see his dream of moon travel realized when the United States would take part in the space race with the Soviet Union, albeit watching from the ground instead of leading the men into space himself. 
And I'm kind of just going to wrap up, but we'll mention him more as we go along. But Mm -hmm. once in America, he kind of did make his own name for himself. He didn't really have someone propping him up. And the way he did that was he wrote in some magazines and then eventually was recognized by one Walt Disney and appeared on Disney TV shows about space three times. And that's where he got his name out there. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Oof, Disney. <laughs> but at this point, no one knew that he was a Nazi. So Right, yeah. When did that information actually pop up? Like 19... 1980s? Yep, up until the 1980s and 90s, Von Braun was viewed as more of a victim of the Nazi party rather than a part of the Nazi party. Oh. <laughs> because before that, the only piece of information that was available to the public was the arrest record by the Gestapo. So... They were like, oh, he wanted to get out of there, but they arrested him. And so he was seen as a victim. It's like, oh, he did hard time. It was 10 days. Yeah, exactly. Just for being a little drunk and mouthing off. But investigative journalists eventually uncovered his Nazi record and the thousands of deaths associated to the German V2 program. So his crimes became known. And until his death, he was a national hero for the United States. And despite this information coming out, he is still seen as one of the most important people in space exploration for the 20th century. So he's kind of a big deal, just a very dubious attachment there. Very brilliant man, morals a little sus. Yeah, and there's a guy that wrote a a couple of books on him, and he did some interviews with PBS and stuff. And one of them that I read, basically, he just said he sleptwalked his way into being trapped in the Nazi party because mm. he was just taking opportunity after opportunity until he couldn't get out. Right. So, yeah, it, it's just the definition of opportunism getting you into trouble. Oh, for sure. Literally, he was a curious cat and he got, got a little lost. too curious. Yeah. Lost like eight lives being yeah. underground. Barely hung on, but yep. yeah, he made it to America. Yep. Hey, US of A, baby. Yep. And employing Nazis since 1959. Yep. And then he would become integral in our space program. So. And we labeled him a hero. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Not to USA. Say, <laughs> USA. Not to say that he isn't one of the most brilliant space like exploration minds. Right. Yeah. I will not take that away from him. He was a very brilliant man. And like I said, he is pretty much the reason we got to the moon. Oh, for sure. But yeah, just it's hard to sever the tie with what he did beforehand. Yep. But uh, anyway, just taking over now, just we're going to go into the actual space race as a whole, as well as, of course, the U.S. of A. landing on the moon. So after World War II, of course, uh, after we defeat Nazi Germany... After we secure Werner von Braun, von Braun, a new fun little conflict began just about immediately, and as you all know, that's known as the Cold War. And this battle, international battle, pitted the United States, the democratic capitalist, basic, basically the democratic capitalist center of the world, against the main communist. Uh, proponent country of the Soviet Union. Yeah, and that's one thing I didn't really think about 
before I started doing this research was how much this is more of an ideological battle mm-hmm. versus a like the space race specifically, not the whole Cold War, because obviously that is. But the space race specifically was showing which is superior, capitalism or communism, which system is better. And this was their way of showing it because advancement in technology. Mm-hmm. You even see a lot of that today with like we're always being compared. If you think about the last six years with how often we compare the United States economy or our debt level, like with China. Yeah. It's almost the same thing where, oh, look at that. Like China's doing pretty well recently. Must be communism. Or, of course, the United States being a powerhouse for the last 200 years. It's like all capitalism. So that still goes on today, I, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, definitely. But like you mentioned, the battle between the two superpowers was really, when it came to the space race, was truly around proving the superiority of the technology, uh, the military firepower of each country, and like Jacob mentioned, basically which one's better, capitalism or communism or socialism. Yeah, because we are already in an arms race for the nuclear stuff, but now we're oh, yeah. like, ah, what if we put them in space? <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just picturing a, this huge table in the White House, and they're like, what can we beat the Soviets at? And like, what ideas got scratched off? Yeah. They were like, space circled, nuclear warheads circled. What do you think was like scratched off? We didn't bother going to the center of Earth, so that would scratch yeah, off. Yeah, right. Making superhumans. No, we tried that. We did try. We, we yep, tried definitely that. Russia tried that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were just thro- evaporating ships. <laughs> <laughs> they were just throwing darts at a board. Uh, by the mid-1950s, the U.S.-Soviet Cold War had worked its way into the fabric of basically every single, everyday life in both countries, uh, of course, being fueled by the arms race and the constant threats of nuclear war. What a fun time. It's not like we're dealing with that today at all. It's not, yeah, it's not like we're dealing with potential nuclear war, international conflict. You know, everyone's a spy. People are spying on you through your phones. I mean, again, bringing up China. China's spying on you through your phones. Uh, but with the war in Korea and then, of course, the war in Vietnam, the tensions were constantly escalating when it comes to that international warfare. I mean, other huge tension points. That would continue during the space race, of course, were the construction of the Berlin Wall in 1961, and of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we did a full episode on, if you want to go back and listen to that. Uh, Space exploration, space exploration, in addition to all these other tensions that were going on, basically served as, you know, more of a, what can each country do for humankind as a whole. You know, how are they advancing their technology? And on October 4th, 1957, a Soviet R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile launched Sputnik. Yeah, this, this little guy. It's amazing how important this little guy is. <laughs> Incredibly important. And Sputnik, for those of you who aren't in Russia, which I assume is our entire listener base. We've got some listeners in Russia. Dude, shout out. Shout out if you're not Putin. (laughs) (laughs) Or Putin, if you're listening, do a press conference and shout out our podcast for making fun of you guys all the time. We'll send you a t-shirt, I swear to God. (laughs) I don't think we want Putin's support, though, so I guess don't do that. 
no press is bad press. <laughs> <laughs> I know we said we'll sell out, but I don't know if I'm don't willing know. to go that we far. Want to, we don't want to sell out to Russian oligarchs. No, 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 no. Uh, but Sputnik, wow. That was all for me to say Sputnik is Russian for traveler. <laughs> uh, and this was the world's first artificial satellite and the first man-made object to be placed into Earth's orbit, which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Like the math that had to go into that to put something directly in the orbit and, and it not com- overshoot it. And it completely took the U.S. by surprise. Like mm-hmm. nobody was prepared for this. So when everyone saw the news... Then they saw, oh, this thing is orbiting the Earth multiple times a day going over America. That's kind of a big deal when you're trying to deal with spies and espionage. I cannot imagine the takes that were taken. Oh, that absolutely. Were, that were happening. Yeah. Just, just everyone's, every, there's just old farmer Bill being like, the Russians are spying my house 16 times a day. Yeah, right. See how many cows I got. Yeah. Uh. Like Jacob mentioned, this completely shocked the American people because up until this point, uh, the United States and Americans as a whole, we were the quote-unquote explorers. Like It's very much in our DNA, if you will, to, like we talked about Manifest Destiny quite a bit. Like it was, It's in our DNA to go and explore, go and, for lack of a better phrase, conquer someone else's land. So they're like, wait a minute. How come we aren't up that there? That moon's looking real empty. <laughs> Space was that next frontier and a logical extension of this great American idea of exploration. And it was, again, crucial that we could not, as a country, lose any ground, whether it's on our own planet or in space, to the Soviets at this point. In addition, this demonstration of the overwhelming power of the R-7 missile basically laid it out very clear that a nuclear warhead could get into the U.S. airspace at any time that they wanted. And that was kind of the biggest thing was the satellite was almost secondary at first because they're like, ah, they have missiles that can launch nuclear warheads pretty far. Yeah. (laughs) So those R-7s got some get up. Yeah. (laughs) The following year in 1958, the United States then launched its own satellite explorer one so we got traveler sputnik and then explorer which for in english means explorer (laughs) yeah but before this on december 6th 1957 we tried to launch one and failed and it was a huge televised event because they thought it was going to launch this satellite and all of the american public saw it it was just a giant blow to the american ego thinking we are already behind and this is just another hindrance in our progress there. So this is where Von Braun gets hired because mm-hmm. they told him, you have 60 days from that day to build a satellite that will get into space. And he did it. Yeah. So he was credit. He definitely did it. It's insane. J- January 31st, 1958, just under two months after the first failure. The turnaround time. It's, he basically came in just I'm picturing him scribbling off everyone's work and then just saying, no, this is how you do a rocket. Yeah, and the turnaround on everything that happens in this timeline is absolutely insane. I think that was my biggest takeaway from this is how quickly this all happened. Right. I mean, that same year, Dwight D. Eisenhower, president at the time, he signed a public order creating NASA, and which was the first 
or excuse me, which is the United States Federal Agency for Space Exploration. Yep. So, I mean, the president signed a direct order being like, we got to get this going, which is very telling on what the priority was at this time, like with the space race. In addition to creating NASA, Eisenhower also created two national security-oriented space programs that would operate simultaneously with NASA's program. So not space... Space Force. That's the <laughs> Space Force. That's yeah. what Trump created. <laughs> uh, the one of these organizations uh, was spearheaded by the United States Air Force and was dedicated to exploiting the military potential of space. So they would look for again just any way for us to use space as a military advantage. Can we put guns up there? Have we thought about hooking up an asteroid? with the AR. A lasso. Can we lasso, lasso it and use that? <laughs> yes, if we lasso the asteroid and then just like do it around the orbit, then throw it really, really hard at Russia. <laughs> just destroy the entire planet. <laughs> well, hey, we won the space race. That's yeah, a job. Technically, that's a win. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no one remembers the final score. They only remember if you win. <laughs> There's no pictures on the scorecard. <laughs> Half of Earth is sawed off. <laughs> oh, man. And then the second organization was led by the CIA, the Air Force, and a new organization called the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, which, funny enough, the existence of this, the NRO, was kept classified until the early 1990s and was codenamed Corona. Nice. So With a lime. That just comes full circle. And we all know that the CIA has never done anything sketchy, so no, <laughs> sure, nothing was going on there. This is where they try to use mind power to launch rockets yeah, instead of fuel. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is all going on at the same time as MKUltra, so I mean, there's a lot going on in the United States at this time. I can't wait for probably 30 to 40 years from now where just the new batch of crazy experimental stuff that the u.s is or that just science is working on like when these documents all get declassified oh i hope we're still doing a podcast we'll be be in the home being like and then the did you see the headlines lie on the podcast and be like well i was actually one of the guards on january 6th (laughs) trying to fight off the horde it's like like the guys that call into art bell and tell them they worked at area 51 (laughs) yeah that was us yeah that was us shout out us um but the the second organization that i mentioned or joint effort between three organizations that i mentioned would use orbiting satellites to gather intelligence on the soviet union and its allies so this is one of the first instances where we're dedicating space satellites to do intelligence operations. In 1959, the Soviet space program took their next step forward with the launch of Luna 2, which was the first space probe to actually hit the moon. So they just kind of took the uh, slingshot approach and just said, what if we hit it? Shoot it up there. (laughs) Do you guys want this back? It's Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin get there eventually. They're like, do you guys, do you guys want this back? And they're like, holy crap. It's like finding, (laughs) it's like finding your golf ball. It's still alive. (laughs) It's still up there. Is there a dog up there by chance? You're right. Oh, puppy. Yeah. The Russians were like, oh, we got a satellite up there. Let's see if we can send something alive in there. So they just, they sent this poor dog named Laika up there and the, the dog didn't even make it to space. It died because of the stress of the, the, 
the lunch. Yep, and he was part of Sputnik 2. She, so. she was. She, oh, sorry. She was a good girl. She was such a good girl. But yeah, she was a stray on the Moscow streets until she was officially enlisted into the Soviet space program. And then they launched that bitch up. Yep. Ah. <laughs> sorry, Laika. Uh, rest in peace. Then in April 1961, the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person to ever orbit Earth in a satellite. Traveling in the capsule, a capsule-like spacecraft, Vostok 1. It's a huge deal. I think that I get anxiety and get stressed sometimes with just like a simple marketing job where I'm just yelling at people to use the right colors. Yeah. Imagine going to space. Like first person the per- the ever. first person. And all you know is that a dog went up there and died, <laughs> died. immediately. <laughs> yeah, right. But the biggest part about this is not just the fact that he orbited the Earth, but the fact that he re-entered the Got atmosphere back. and landed. Got back. Like, and was hailed as a national hero because that is a huge thing. They did not know whether it was going to work oh, man. bringing this person back, but they figured it out. So that, that is honestly one of the biggest hurdles they had to jump. The Soviets never really thought about how to get the people back. Like, for example, when they tested the Tsar Bomba, and they were like, just drop this, literally the biggest bomb to ever bomb, and just were like, throw it on that island up like, there. Yeah, where people used to live, but cleared them out. And they were like, yeah, just uh, try to go really fast after you let it go. Yeah, and there's a <laughs> get out of there. There is one, I don't know specifically when it happens in this timeline but there was a russian space like mission where they sent a woman into space right and there's a very haunting audio of her coming back in as the capsule's burning oh. and she dies upon re-entry because she burns alive inside but she like sends back a message saying it's real hot it's hot like it's terrifying <laughs> so yeah they did not really take many precautions on some of this stuff Wow, that is, I can't believe, the internet's wild. Like, yeah. That's just out. There's just out, it's out there. Yep. Yeah, it's like, oh, history.com. <laughs> Here we go. For the United States effort to send a man into space, which they called Project Mercury, NASA engineers designed a smaller cone-shaped capsule, which was far lighter than Vostok 1. They tested the craft with chimpanzees and held a final test flight in March 1961 before the Soviets were able to pull ahead with Gagarin's launch. Yeah, apparently we just got street chimpanzees that we can grab. Yes, you're just... Apparently, yeah, just grab them, grab them from the zoo. They, and, they got dogs, we got chimpanzees, <laughs> I guess. What a time to be alive for animals. Yeah, honestly. And this is the same time period where chimps were like being experimented on oh, by yeah. Russian scientists to try and merge with human DNA. So there's a, a lot going on. This The 90s... Oh, we need to do like our top five weirdest science experiments sometime. Oh, that I would just be absolutely a, down. That would be a solid two hour. Episode. I can guarantee there's going to be a lot of things in there that are like, ah, it's going to be tough to broach this on the podcast in a way that's not disgusting. It's going to hard to make. It's going to be very hard to make jokes. Yeah. <laughs> but at the of, same time, really easy. Like, <laughs> right. depends on what kind of mood the audience is in that day. But then on May fifth. Uh, United States astronauts Alan Shepard became the first American in space, though he did not orbit. Then, later that year in May, President John F. Kennedy 
in a joint session of Congress, made the bold and public claim that the United States would land a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Yeah, and I'll throw that the audio clip of that speech in right here. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Perfect. Because it is a cool speech to hear him boldly say, Yes. I'm not going to do it, but someone's going to figure out how to get us to the moon by 1970. But don't you worry. In the meantime, I will just pour over this in my mind. No, I promise you I'll be just, I'll work myself to death. No, I promise you I will not stop until my head explodes (laughs) with finding (laughs) me. Then in February 1962, John Glenn became the first American to orbit Earth. And by the end of the year, the foundation of NASA's lunar landing program, which was known as Project Apollo, were laid in place. This is when NASA's budgets in the early 60s, this is where their budget and the interest, uh, just A, as a nation as a whole, so public in the public eye, as well as their funding, as well as just the priority uh, that the government put on this was just unbelievably increased. For example, from 1961 to 64, their budget was increased by 500%. Yeah. And it, well, it, it kind of had to be because yeah. now you have a, a promise to the American public from John F. Kennedy, who's a very beloved president, saying we will make it to space in like eight years, like less than eight years. And NASA was like, <laughs> we don't know how to do that. <laughs> and so they started designing all this stuff. And the first design that they came up with was called the Nova Rocket. But it was said to be so big and heavy that people were doubting whether it would even be able to land on the moon properly without just like damaging the moon. Oh my so, God. so they were like, I, I guess we'll figure it out. That's like if I remember, like back in school when people are like, well, actually, Jacob has the answer. Like, I know that Jacob knows the answer to this one. You're like, what? Yeah, I don't know. Fuck that. you. Yeah, you just set me up for failure here. Uh, and then, as Jacob mentioned, the staffing just got increased by an astronomical ayo, number they involved or excuse me they recruited 34,000 NASA employees directly working for NASA as well as 375 employees from different industrial 375,000 <laughs> that's a very important distinction yeah, they, they hired less than 500 people <laughs> yep. wow are they good good job uh, but yes, 375,000 employees, all with different industrial and university backgrounds. Yeah, so this is like people from Boeing and the computer giant IBM. So they're Ever getting, heard like, of them? They're getting like the <laughs> best of the best people to work on this because they needed it. Right, right, right. Because at this point, they did have the design for the rocket they wanted, which will come to be known as the Saturn V, which is designed by Von, uh, von Braun. But 
they just didn't have the people to build it with the no or like the know-how they had people with the know-how they just didn't have enough people with the specific know-how at every step to mm-hmm. make it a quick and seamless process so building a rocket a lot harder than you think yeah it literally is rocket science hey <laughs> <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, back in the USS, excuse me, it wasn't the USSR. Come on, that's a rookie move. Unbelievable. Nothing good happens there. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union. Wait. Yeah, what yeah, am I smoking? I, I don't know. <laughs> I thought you were going back to the US, but nope. Wow. All right. What a day. We're on a roll. My, my brain is just in vacation mode, going up north in the cabin, just focusing on that. But meanwhile, the Soviet Union's lunar landing program proceeded very tentatively, mostly due to internal debate over why are we even sending and sending things into space and why are we you know, investing so much money into this, uh, as well as the untimely death of Sergei Korolev, who was the chief engineer of the Soviet space program. Yeah, this is, the, this is a huge deal because he's the one that set everything in motion for them up to this point. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely tell that their progress s- declines quite sharply once he, once he passes away. He was essentially their Von Braun, for lack of any other yeah, way to say it. definitely. But uh, just before we get too much further, I just wanted to highlight a few things about this, this rocket that they're trying to build. Because I watched, I believe it was a Discovery Channel documentary that's on YouTube, and they go into some of the details about building the rock, like building this rocket, the Saturn V, and how much of an undertaking it really was, and why they needed all these people. So, the biggest undertakings in the building process were the fuel tanks and the engines, which kind of seems obvious, but you wouldn't really think about the fuel tanks being that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. But these fuel tanks had to balance between being light enough to be on this craft, not weighing it down too much to actually fly, but also being sealed well enough to hold oxygen at a cold enough temperature that it becomes a liquid. So you're talking about a cryogenic chamber of a a fuel tank that's not super heavy, which is a very difficult thing to scientifically get your mind around when you don't have very advanced computing processes oh yeah this is in the 60s the computer isn't invented for another 20 years yeah they don't have like liquid thermodynamic models and stuff like that so they're doing all of this on paper they're using an abacus it's it's insane and these engines that they needed to build which they already had laying around but they needed to figure out how to get these engines to safely just a single engine create over 620 tons of thrust. So these are not small things. And one, wow. of the, one of the biggest issues they had with these engines in their testing was maintaining a consistent fuel flow because each of these engines burned up to three tons of fuel a second. A second? A second. <laughs> that is absolutely insane. It's in, it, these are mind-blowing figures, but basically it, the fuel would be released inconsistently and that would cause a literal pocket of heat right. it, that streamed to spiral around inside the engine and eventually it just blew up. So that is not what you want when you're trying to send people to space. <laughs> no, hard to get a lot of volunteers. So it's absolutely mind-boggling 
that they are able to not only figure out how to get one of these to work well, but to get five of these engines to work in unison, which created a mind-boggling 7.6 million tons of thrust, which is still the strongest rocket we've ever sent. That's so much power. And they figured this out in like five years. (laughs) This is the only time I'll bring up the conspiracy theory of like the moon landing being fake but that is that's one of like their main points of like how did they do that but like that's just incredible brain power watch the videos of them testing this it it's an insane thing to look at it looks yeah. like a giant fire burning oven just blasting off into like a forest it's insane it's crazy to see like the fact that they actually got this to work and then they were like, yeah, let's put the four on the outside on gimbals so they can move and then still maintain <laughs> proper thrust. <laughs> right. It's like, ah, you guys are smart. And let's keep in mind, they still have to like aim this bad boy. Yeah, too. Like, ex- you can send this straight up in the air, but you actually have to hit, like you have to time it out to where the moon is in the perfect position for it, correct? Yeah. And then shoot that bad boy up there and then <laughs> let well, not people on- steer it. Not only that, you have to literally use earth's orbit as a slingshot to rotate around the earth so you start like it's like a three-quarter rotation around the earth and then you rocket for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. off of that course to the moon so there's so much going into this that they have to think about and they somehow figured all this out on literal paper (laughs) <laughs> that is so bond. That's uh, it's le- literally leaving me speechless because I I was watching that and I was just I don't even know how to comprehend these numbers anymore. Truly, like truly insane. Yeah. So that that was the that was the project that they had to c- somehow complete for <laughs> JFK. For JFK, yeah. And then, like you mentioned, uh, after those five years. They conducted the first unmanned Apollo mission in 1966, which was basically testing the structural integrity of the proposed launch vehicle and spacecraft combination, so everything that Jacob just mentioned. However, there was a huge setback that happened in 1967. Yeah. So in 1967, at Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, a fire broke out during a manned launch pad test of the Apollo spacecraft and Saturn rocket. During this setback, during this fire, three astronauts were actually killed. Yeah, and I watched a little short video just to see what happened here and read a little bit about it. And there, there's recording of them talking inside because basically all they were doing is laying inside. They sealed themselves in. They're mm-hmm. supposed to go through a simulation of a flight, basically. And as they were sitting there, there was all these issues going on. Like, they couldn't communicate clearly between the craft and the command center. And one of the guys in the the pod actually says, how are we going to get to space if we can't communicate between two or three buildings? And then all of a sudden, the oxygen alarm started going off, saying that the, the oxygen amount levels were too high. And... Basically, it turns out that they didn't build this thing to spec right because they cut corners. 
So instead of doing like a, I believe it was a two cell oxygen system they should have used. They only use a one cell oxygen system. Mm. And the way that people got in is that the hatch opened inwards instead of outwards. So it it was pretty much just if something did go wrong, there's no way to get out. And once they sealed it, those high oxygen levels, the fire started and flash burned them. Less, Less than 30 seconds, all of them were dead. Oh my God, that's such a horrific way to go. It is, yeah. So their names were Gus Grissom, Edward White, and Roger Chaffee. And it's, it is interesting, though, the way that not only this, but JFK's assassination, the, they became almost martyrs for the space program because right. it, it motivated everyone else working on it to be like, we cannot let their sacrifices be in vain. And JFK is the entire reason why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. And he kind of showed us that if you have a young, a leader that's looking out far reaching into the future that can set something in motion and then watch it run as he leaves office, that that'll motivate us to keep doing what we think is right for humanity. So, I mean, for sure, it's a very, in- it's very interesting to see how these setbacks turn into motivation. Right, yeah. I mean, all 34,000 of the NASA employees and the hundreds of thousands of contractors, all from most reports, really just forged right on ahead. Yeah. And then despite this huge, huge setback, a year later uh, in Apollo 7, uh, the first manned Apollo mission orbited Earth and successfully tested many of the sophisticated systems needed to conduct a moon journey and landing. Yeah, it, it, they, they moved very quickly after this. Yeah, that's only a year after just a huge tragedy. Yeah, and so they, but the, that, if that tragedy didn't occur, I don't know that Apollo would have really done as well as it did because since right. it did happen on the ground, they were able to mitigate gate damages i guess you could say i mean obviously it's mm-hmm. a tragic loss of life but now they could look at this and see we, what we need to do to change so that this doesn't happen again versus if it did get into the air and then it failed you're looking at way more money you lose mm-hmm. way more hours you've lost and you might not be able to recover the damage uh from the, the wreck and see exactly what happened so oh yeah that's very true there's a lot of things that turned from dark spots into helpful aspects of this. Gosh, that's so insane how that all works out. Then in December of the same year, so December of 1968, Apollo 8 took three astronauts to the far side of the moon and back. One of them was Pink Floyd. Hell yeah, brother, dark side of the moon. (laughs) The amount of times I've seen that album cover like on a t-shirt just that's astronomical that's like that's the best selling t-shirt of all time it's such a simple cover too it's a rainbow going into a triangle yeah it's it's crazy it's 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 so simple it is (laughs) that's all you need sometimes i guess but everyone in that documentary when they talked about apollo 8 could not put into words how groundbreaking and how audacious this test specifically was. They said this was the test for NASA. This was their still their biggest achievement was sending them and breaking Earth's orbit because this is the first thing with a manned crew that broke out of orbit, which is completely new frontier for everybody. 
and they got back. Yeah, too. That's the biggest thing in my mind. That yeah, that's this a- is only two. Yes, excuse me. This is only two years after that tragedy, and they were able to go around the moon, or excuse me, to the far side of the moon and back. Yeah, that's incredible. And that that's the thing with all of these firsts, like the for Yuri Gagarin, first man at space, mm-hmm. he got back too. So for these guys yeah. to break Earth's orbit and return safely is pretty pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. In March 1969, Apollo 9 then, tust- then tested the lunar module for the first time while in Earth's orbit. Then in that May, so wow, huge, 1969, look at you, oh, with three different Apollo before, missions. Before we get past Apollo 8, one thing I did want to mention that I forgot about was they sent a video that you can watch. It's like the Christmas Eve recording that they sent, but it's them surfacing over the, the side of the moon so right. you can see the Earth. And he reads a passage from Genesis and then wishes everyone a Merry Christmas. But it was a, it's a very cool video because it's the first time that the public is now seeing what they're seeing. So imagine being at home on Christmas Eve morning yeah. and seeing that. It's a, that'd be, that would be life-changing. I truly suggest, I not speak for you, but... We truly suggest that you need to go and see, watch like all these videos that we recommend, uh, especially with this with this moon landing case. Because, and then just think about this is like one of the first videos of out like looking at Earth. Yeah, and just imagine what the public is thinking. It's the first time that you're seeing Earth from outside, from a different perspective, like just in a sea of black. As a species that's been around for however many years like that's absolutely incredible when you put in that perspective um then in may three astronauts of apollo 10 took the first complete apollo spacecraft around the moon in a dry run for the scheduled july landing mission and that makes (laughs) me so that makes me crack up just because first and foremost yes these apollo these three astronauts on apollo 10 Extremely brave, extremely brave people, probably genius people, but that <laughs> sucks. Yeah, okay, we're going to go up there, just do a dry run. We're not going to have you land. We're going to send those other guys up there to do that. Yeah, you're, we checked your names and um, not cool enough. Your name's not Buzz. We're going up. <laughs> Come on, get, you guys got to get better. You, arms, so- <laughs> we, need an, we got Armstrong, Buzz. Come on, you guys are lame. <laughs> So the Apollo 10 uh, Apollo 10 astronauts were Thomas Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan. So we can confirm at this time, not nearly cool, uh, or not nearly as cool as Buzz. Nope. Buzz, Neil, and let's see if I can find the Michael Collins. Michael Collins. <laughs> Good old Mike Collins. Shout out. Father of Phil, wow. <laughs> <laughs> One went out of this world, other went out of this world, and on the beats. Ugh. I don't, that was bad. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> now, for the full story of the moon landing. So, And how it's not real. And how it's not real. They set up in a studio, and they set up the lights so it looked real. How insulting is that, just the, all the people that died to make it happen? It's I like, listened to a episode of Coast to Coast where a guy comes on and talks about how the moon landing was a hoax. Sure. But 
the guy isn't actually the one that did the research on why it's a hoax. His buddy did all the research and wrote a book about it, but his buddy died before he could present it. So he's uh... like the representative of his buddy trying to explain the points that his friend made in the book. And so the guy's, <laughs> anytime he's proposed with like a difficult question, he's like, listen, this isn't my research. This was his research. <laughs> so it's, That'd be like if I tragically died like the day before filming an episode and you just had to like somehow read my kerfunkled notes <laughs> that I take. And then explain it to everyone like what you were trying to say. Right. And you have to mispronounce every single name in honor. In yeah. honor. But he keeps talking about like, oh, there's these still frames that you couldn't possibly get. It's like they have a video camera. You could just take a frame from that and just make it a still frame. Right. This is like we've been using cameras we for have a while. Technology. Right. Yeah. Like this is and the, the word, third time a camera's been on board one of these space. The words things. Van Allen radiation belt come up nine hundred different times. I don't know, man. The it, Van Halen it, what? It is a it's a very fun episode to listen to because he gets very mad at people. I love that. It's so funny. I love that. But side tangent aside, let's actually get into the real story of how he landed <laughs> on the moon. So at nine thirty two AM on July sixteenth, with the entire world watching. Apollo 11 took off from the Kennedy Space Center with astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins all aboard. Armstrong, who was a 38-year-old civilian research pilot, was the commander of the mission. After launching, and after traveling 240,000 miles within 76 hours, which is bonkers. Just a quick flight. That's, I'm not a math guy, but uh, that's a lot of hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or excuse me, that's a lot of miles per hour. But after that time, Apollo 11 entered into a lunar orbit on July 19th. So they were on, it took three days to actually get to the point where they were going to land on the moon. Yep. Which I don't think people think about well, the Gem- a lot. The Project Gemini was set up specifically to test for stuff like that so that mm. they could, they got some of the best astronauts in America at the time just to test this stuff out and be like, how long can you survive? We're going to extend it every time to make sure that it'll work, that you can be mm-hmm. up there for like 10 days at a time if you have to be and stuff. So they they did do a lot of proper planning to make sure that this was going to work. <laughs> right. But they're, they're like, well, we missed. So now we're just going to float forever. Yep. See you next year. Yep. The next day, so July 20th at 1.46 p.m., the lunar module named Eagle, which was manned by Armstrong and Aldrin. Wow, that sucks for Michael. <laughs> yeah, Collins. I know. Uh, separated from the command module, where again, like we mentioned, Collins remained, probably just that's pouting. Why, that's why no one remembers him. <laughs> that sucks, dude. All that work, and you're like, nah, I'll stay back. Yep. Two hours later, the Eagle began its descent to the moon's surface, and at 4:17 p.m. The Eagle landed and touched down on the moon's southwestern edge of the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> Eagle has landed. <laughs> then laid a huge egg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even plan this out that it was going to be like two weeks before the actual landing, but it kind of worked out that way. Right. That, that truly just works out really well for us. Synchronicities. For our purposes. Armstrong immediately radioed to Mission Control in Houston, Texas, which is now a very famous 
I just read that. Be better, me. <laughs> You're the Michael Collins of this podcast. I, I <laughs> I'm the third one that gets left out, and there's only two of us at the table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Armstrong then, after landing, immediately radioed to Mission Control in Houston, Texas, where he said, the eagle has landed. There it is. As I recreated absolutely perfectly. Like yes. <laughs> a minute ago. At 10.39 p.m., five hours ahead of the original schedule, Armstrong opened the hatch of the lunar module. As he made his way down the module's ladder, a television camera attached to the craft recorded his progress and beamed the signal back to Earth. Do you think the moon was embarrassed because they got there early and it didn't have time to put its makeup on? It didn't have, it didn't have time to like set out a cheese plate or anything. <laughs> it's just like, I'm such a terrible I host. I was not ready. My house is so dirty. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> All of these space rocks. I haven't. Oh, don't. Yeah. Please don't look too deep into the sea. It hasn't been cleaned in forever. <laughs> the, the moon's just a frustrated 1940s like stereotypical house. It's a flapper. Yeah, right. <laughs> My golly, Buzz, <laughs> why are you doing here so early? During this broadcast, hundreds of millions watched with unbelievable anticipation. At 10.56 p.m., as Armstrong stepped off the ladder and planted his foot on the moon's powdery surface, he spoke his famous quote, <clears throat> which he later contended was slightly garbled by his microphone, and meant to say, that's one small step for a man. One giant leap for mankind. So that was the original quote, fun enough, which is not, I mean, that, that groundbreaking. It's not, in, it's not very inclusive, okay? Yeah, well, only one dude, only very, one man. Very exclusive of you, Neil. Let's cancel Neil Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> Just so long ago. Aldrin then joined him on the moon's surface 19 minutes later, and together they took photographs of the terrain, planted a United States flag. Hey, ran a few simple scientific tests, and then spoke with President Richard Nixon via a telephone in Houston. And now, stole some rocks. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. Uh, I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you... For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with America in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Except the USSR. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this Earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to Earth. But yeah, what an insane phone call. Yeah. And I really like, I mean... Talk about long distance. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Do you think the telephone company charged the White House just up the wazoo? Taxpayer bills went up that year. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, 
Well, there's no real precedent for us charging uh, out of planet calls, so that'll be one billion. Yeah, <laughs> we know you have the money, Nixon. I know you upped the NASA budget. Come on, right, five hundred percent even. But no, that's absolutely. I I mean that was a really cool quote um, where he where he says that the uh, I'm gonna butcher the quote. I just just listened to it, but when he mentions like the heavens are now open, yeah. to us, like that's a really cool quote. I thought. By 1.11 a.m. on July 21st, both astronauts were back in the lunar module and the hatch was closed. The two men then slept that night on the surface of the moon, which I cannot imagine what kind of sleep they got. That No. Michael Collins is back and he's just like leaning on one arm looking out the window like, guys, come on. I want to go home. <laughs> Like a kid complaining to leave after. Is it church. my turn yet? <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to step on the moon. <laughs> and they. Were, Sorry, they, there's only two flight suits. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> At 1:54 p.m. Uh, that same day on July 21st, the Eagle began its ascent back to the command module. Among the items left on the surface of the moon, and they're still there today is a plaque that reads, Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot on the moon. And then with the date, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind. At 5.35 p.m., Armstrong and Aldrin successfully docked and rejoined Collins, who was just, I can't imagine. And at 12.56 a.m. on July 22nd, Apollo 11 began its journey home, safely splashing down in the Pacific Ocean at 12.50 p.m. on July 24. Crazy. We did it. A nice, quick eight-day trip, nine-day trip. I don't remember what it launched, what day it launched, but it was like three days, so 16th to the 24th. Yeah, 16th to the 24th. Eight yeah. days. Hey, just had to get away from the old ball and chain. Just had to take a week <laughs> off work. <laughs> Can you imagine explaining that? Like, because I think, uh, I think they were both married, but just being like, so I got a little work trip to Honey, do. Listen, I'm going to be going out of state. <laughs> yeah. Well, when will you get back? Hopefully the 24th. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. And it's a kind of a 50 50 shot just at this point. Listen to the radio. You'll hear me on the phone with Nixon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, by landing on the moon, the United States effectively, quote-unquote, won the space race that had begun with Sputnik's initial launch in 1957. For their part, the Soviets made four failed attempts to launch a lunar landing craft between 1969 and 1972, including a similar uh, disaster as the one that we mentioned earlier in the episode, except this one was... And I quote, a, a spectacular launch pad explosion. Nice. So we, they, we had a fire. They had a big old boom. Yep. Yeah, like I said, after uh, the lead scientist, Sergei Korolev, Korolev died, they kind of just didn't have anywhere to go from there. So, I mean, if we, it's, a, it's like if we didn't have Werner von Braun. Oh, yeah. Th we probably would have had the same things happen. Like, we maybe wouldn't have even gotten that far. So We probably then would have went with the studio option. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. Just... 
be like, well, Von Braun's out of here. So. But for the Soviets... All part, right, Spielberg, let's the, go. The Soviets did have, though, the first satellite, the first living organism in space, the first Shout out, Leica. person orbiting, the first woman in space. They did have a lot of firsts while Sergei was alive. So Absolutely. He, he was... Everyone pretty much agrees like he is number one in space exploration because he has so many firsts. Mm-hmm. So Oh, absolutely. From beginning to end, the American public's attention was truly captivated by the space race and the various developments by the Soviets and U.S. space programs were, hev- were heavily covered in both nations' medias. Of course, the frenzy of interest was further encouraged by the new medium of television. So like we mentioned, there was an actual TV camera on Eagle, or excuse the Eagle landing module, so everyone in the world could literally see yeah, another it- thing in space and apollo 8 too like with the christmas eve thing it's, right, right. it's very cool to watch it and be like this was the first time yes that's truly incredible the astronauts uh from this era were came to be seen as the ultimate american heroes and earthbound men and women seemed to enjoy living vicariously through them soviets in turn through the American public's eyes, were always pictured as the ultimate villains with their massive, relentless efforts to surpass America and prove the power of the communist system. With the conclusion of the space race, the United States government, governmental interest in lunar missions waned after the early 1970s. In 1975, the joint Apollo-Soyuz mission sent three U.S. astronauts into space aboard an Apollo spacecraft that docked in orbit with a Soviet-made Soyuz vehicle. When the commanders of the two crafts officially greeted each other, their handshake in space served to symbolize the gradual improvement of U.S.-Soviet relations in the later years of the Cold War. I'm just imagining it as the scene from Rogue One at the end right. where, where Vader comes through the door. Right, right, <laughs> right. And everyone's just like, ah... Shit. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> we got to get out of here. Get these moon rocks out of here. All right. You guys can win the Cold War. Bye. Bye. <laughs> but that is the conclusion of the space race, the moon landing, and then Werner von Braun. Absolutely crazy. I, I know we've talked about space in the past. Man, it's just like endlessly fascinating, this stuff. Just the amount of work that people had to do to create anything close to what we did. It's... Like I said, it's mind-boggling. I, that documentary I watched, there's just so much cool information in there mm-hmm. that you can probably never make use of in normal conversation, but if you're nerds like us, you can do this. Oh, I will definitely weasel my like weasel a conversation this weekend into being about the moon landing. Yeah. Just the amount of math and just the most incredible minds ever to get these bad boy like these pieces of metal into space and to land on the moon and back. Truly incredible. And we've truly kind of just scratched the surface mm-hmm. of space exploration. Like we're still doing a ton of interesting things with different telescopes. I remember one episode you mentioned that we found a planet that's literally just raining molten iron Yep, at all times. My favorite planet, dude. It's so yep. cool. But space is fascinating. We absolutely love it. 
And, and I mean, we're on our way to trying to get to Mars now. So, I mean, it's just right? that we don't have as much interest in space exploration as we used to. So the budgets are very much smaller than they were for the space race. Right. So we need to like whip up a new rivalry with a yes. different country. Someone needs we, to get close to Mars so we can go first. <laughs> we Yeah. We just need to get scared of another country. That'll be great for our oh, space perfect. exploration. Yeah, <laughs> Always works out. But yeah, I hope you guys all enjoyed that topic, and I think it was just a very one of the proudest moments of American history. Yeah, and if you did, if you are interested in this kind of stuff, I would recommend going on YouTube, watching the documentary if you mm-hmm. want to. It's got a ton of the footage from testing and stuff like that, which is really cool to see. I think it's like fifty nine minutes long, so it's just an hour video. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. I would recommend watching it. I can post it on the Facebook group. I can if anyone wants to watch it. So. Absolutely. Oh, speaking of social media, it's hot dang. Hold hold on a second there, partner. That Facebook group that Jacob just mentioned is called the Agora, a gem, or the Gems of History podcast discussion group. We post not only our links to our new episodes, but we post funny memes. Yeah, and I do Flashback Fridays every Friday. Yes, Flashback Fridays. Um, you can also find us on other social media channels, such as LinkedIn at gems underscore history you can find jacob at jacob from wisco you can then find myself at whatevskis you can find us on instagram as well at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast and then last but not least you can find us on tiktok at gems of history pod hell yeah you can but yeah, I, we will post plenty of pictures for this one. There's so much visual media associated with oh, yeah. the space race. So there's plenty of stuff to look at and listen to with this one, which is cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very a very monumental moment in American history and human history specifically, or specifically American and human in general. But hope you guys had a fun time with us listening to Richard Nixon talk to people on, in space. But, Pre-Watergate. <laughs> yeah, right. Before he was a villain. That's hilarious that that's what he's known for the most. And he, like, he was the president when we sent people to land on something not our planet. Yeah. So he, he had a lot going on during his presidency. I mean... Oh, the Vietnam War? The, yeah. He, oh, my God. That was a crazy eight years. Yeah. JFK was... He really set up a lot of cool stuff and then during nixon's presidency it all just kind of like collided into a giant mess it's crazy that those two are probably the two other than like washington are probably the two most famous presidents yeah i, I mean, would say you get like abe lincoln well, george Duh, washington lincoln. and theodore roosevelt you know the mount rushmore ever heard of no 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 he's not important <laughs> he didn't do anything cool he just <laughs> right. killed a bunch of indians oh teddy roosevelt yeah yeah we might need to do an episode on oh him. yeah well See, presidents to me aren't that fascinating, but there is fascinating things that presidents have done, which are interesting. So, Right. That's very true. I think Teddy Roosevelt may be the exception because he's played by Robin Williams in a movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a half. That's actually that's, the that's only, probably why no one's came for Roosevelt's ass before. That's the only reason we need to cover Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> right. But that will be in the future. This is all we got for you guys this week. So we will talk to you all later. Have safe. I hope you had safe 4th of July celebrations if you are celebrating in the United States. And everyone made good decisions. Goodbye.